Guys, let's uh, get comfortable. Let's open up our Bibles this morning. We want to turn to the book of Acts. Chapter 26 is where we're at this morning, where we pick up our study. And the Apostle Paul has had some of the greatest opportunities to preach uh, the gospel in his entire life at this point and in his uh, recent days. And during the two years that he has been in custody at this point since returning to Israel from his uh, missionary journeys, the Lord has used him perhaps as never before and given him opportunities as never before. He's reasoned with Felix, he's answered to Festus, and now we're going to see him sharing with Agrippa the king. And you're going to be blessed, I think, uh, and encouraged uh, as you see and learn from how Paul shares here. We're going to see Paul's testimony uh, and then the response uh, that he gets. Acts chapter 26, verse 1 says this, Then Agrippa said to Paul, You're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and he answered for himself. So the new governor Uh, That was Portius Festus. He brought in uh, King Agrippa to help uh, with preparing the charges against the Apostle Paul for Caesar. Uh, He had struggled to uh, find anything against Paul. In fact, he found nothing. He, He really struggled being a Roman, it seems, to understand the the religious context uh, of what people were accusing Paul of. And so he brings in uh, King Agrippa, the client king of Rome, and Paul is now given an opportunity to to answer, uh, to share with Agrippa. And he says this, verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because today I shall answer for myself before you concerning all the things of which I'm accused by the Jews, especially because you are expert in all customs and questions which have to do with the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to hear me patiently. So, unlike the Romans, uh, uh, Agrippa was uh, someone who understood exactly uh, or uh, quite sufficiently uh, many of the things that had been leveled against Paul. Uh, to Festus, you know, it, w- it, it, it could have been any religion. Uh, any dispute or any disagreement, and he hadn't really concerned himself with religious things, uh, anybody's religion for that matter. He was concerned with politics and didn't seem to really apply himself too much during these proceedings. Um, So Paul is happy to answer to Agrippa because uh, Agrippa was the one who was, not only did he understand, he was given the authority by Rome to appoint the high priests. So, so at this time, that, that responsibility had been taken from the Jews as to who to determine was going to be the next high priest. And, and Rome actually would determine that. And, and the one that Rome gave that responsibility and that authority to was Agrippa. Because he understood, obviously, the Jewish religion and the Jewish customs. And so uh, Paul is more than happy to answer to him. He, he's probably thinking, finally, at least I have somebody that, that will at the very least understand the subject matter here. And so he says, my manner, verse four of life, 
from my youth, which was spent from the beginning among my own nation at Jerusalem, all the Jews know. And they knew me from the first, if they were willing to testify, that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived a Pharisee. So Paul was born in Tarsus of Cilicia, uh, and that was in Asia Minor. It's the uh, area kind of south central Turkey, uh, along the coast of the, or not far from the coast of the Mediterranean. But Paul came to Jerusalem as a, as a young man, as a youth, and he studied under one of the greatest rabbis. Acts chapter 22, verse 3 tells us that, that he studied, studied under the, the, a very famous rabbi named Gamaliel. So, so Paul had this pedigree. He was, uh, he was uh, the, of the strictest, most conservative sect of Judaism, uh, the Pharisees, which we've talked about often. So raised from a young boy, trained by the uh, arguably one of the greatest rabbis ever in Israel, certainly of the day, and, and of the, the strictest sect of Judaism. And he began to distinguish himself and, and to actually rise to prominence uh, within Judaism. Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, uh, Paul talks about this there. If you want to take a look uh, over there in Galatians, the first chapter. <clears throat> in Galatians chapter 1, verse 14, Paul talks about how he progressed in his, his uh, track within Judaism. And he says, And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous, uh, he says, for the traditions uh, of my fathers. And so he, he just talks about how, you know, he, he had all of these peers, but, you know, he began to even rise above them. And when you see uh, the, the skill of the Apostle Paul as a Christian, you can kind of imagine him previously as a Pharisee. And within Judaism. And so um, the point that he's making to Agrippa is, is that he wasn't an outsider. He wasn't someone who, who came in and who the Jews had a problem with because he came in and he didn't understand their customs or their ways. He, he was their customs and their ways. He, he, he was their traditions. He was the, the upholder of so many of these things. He was the, the persecutor previously of, of people like him. And he was a peer to his accusers. And so verse, 20, uh, verse chapter 26, verse 6, it says this, And now, he says, I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made by God to our fathers. So Agrippa being, you know, uh, I, I would say uh, Judaism adjacent, you know, we wouldn't call him an extremely uh, devout uh, Jewish person. He or his sister slash wife, um, but uh, he was certainly not unfamiliar with these things, even things uh, like the resurrection. And so Paul says in verse 6 that, that he was being judged uh, for the hope of the resurrection. Paul has made this claim a couple of times. He talked about it in chapter 23, uh, verse 6, when he, he got the whole Sanhedrin kind of stirred up because the 
Pharisees and the Sadducees. Pharisees obviously believing in a resurrection, the Sadducees not believing in a resurrection. That created a whole dispute there. Chapter 24, uh, verse 15, he mentioned it again. He was being judged uh, for this reason. And specifically how Jesus was the fulfillment of this promise. It was promised, the resurrection, to their fathers. You say, I, I didn't know that a lot of people, I think, are unaware of this, that resurrection is, a, is an Old Testament subject. Not just a New Testament subject. Obviously, we see the fulfillment of these promises in the New Testament. But resurrection, uh, like so much of Christianity, as I've mentioned to you before, Christianity is the fulfillment of the promises found within Judaism. And the greatest of these is the resurrection. If you go back to one of the oldest accounts in the Bible, in the book of Job, chapter 19, we find uh, the resurrection in, in the words of Job, chapter 19, verse 25. Job says this, he says, For I know that my re- Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after, he says, my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God. Speaks of his bodily resurrection, yet in the future, Isaiah put it this way in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. Your dead shall live, together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, you who dwell in the dust, for your dew is like the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. Daniel, also another of the great prophets in chapter 12, verse 2, said this, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Daniel actually speaks of both resurrections. We know in the scripture that there is a resurrection of the righteous dead and there is a resurrection of the unbelieving unto judgment. And Daniel actually talks about both of those things. So the Old Testament is filled with the resurrection. And in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus actually points to the book of Exodus to uh, support the idea of the resurrection in Matthew 22 verse 31. Jesus uh, says this concerning the resurrection of the dead. He says, Matthew 22, verse 31, Have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Of course, as I said, he's quoting from the book of Exodus, chapter 3, verse 6. That's the burning bush passage and God said to to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. So so God is not concerned about the non-existent as if people could be non-existent. God is the God of the living uh, and the believing in particular. And so this was nothing new. Paul wasn't new and his subject matter wasn't new. Paul was a conservative Paul was historical in his doctrine. It just 
what had happened was is they had drifted so far. They had drifted so far from the understanding that Job had, from the understanding that Moses had, from the understanding that Isaiah and Daniel had. And so while Jesus tried to bring them back to that, and then later Paul tries to bring them back to that, for many of them it was uh, not happening and it was not going to happen. And so that was the nature of the conflict. Paul says it's, you know, it's not random things. It's not just some outsider coming in and causing trouble. The problem is the very core, the very essence, the very hope, the promise among promises within the Jewish faith. And he says, verse 7, to this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day hope to attain. For this hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused by the Jews. Um, I want to talk about something here before we get any further. And um, that is that from the Bible and other historical accounts, we know that there are 12 tribes and there are no lost tribes. So hear this very clearly because you'll hear all kinds of people say, oh, the lost tribes, the lost tribes, the lost tribes. There are no lost tribes. No tribes are lost. Nobody's missing. There's no ransom letter coming for missing tribes. Nobody's lost. There are no lost tribes. There are 12 tribes of Israel. And somewhere along the way, somebody, I don't know who, started saying this and people started repeating it. And now I think more people than not, I, I hear this all of the time. And, and I, I don't know where they get this idea. The, the only thing I do know is they don't get it from the Bible. Because if you study the Bible, it's very clear that the northern tribes were taken into captivity. 722 BC, the northern, you had a divided kingdom at that time. You had the northern 10 tribes, and then you had the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin. The northern kingdom is conquered in 722, taken captive uh, by the Assyrians. Uh, The Assyrian empire was ultimately conquered by the Babylonian empire, The Babylonian Empire would uh, take the southern kingdom captive in five, uh, well, three deportations, um, ultimately uh, being completed in 586 B.C. with the destruction of the temple. Now, so then you had, by that time, uh, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom in captivity in Babylon by 586 Uh, The Babylonians were then ultimately conquered by the Persians. And then all 12 tribes were reunited in captivity. And what we see in the book of Jeremiah in particular is, is that those tribes reunited in captivity returned together after the captivity. Jeremiah chapter 33, if you want to take a look there with me. Jeremiah chapter 33 Verse 7, this is why I say, and, and I don't say this with, um, there, there's, n- there's nothing attached to it other than um, if you read the Bible, y- you won't come to this conclusion. 
But, you know, I could say that probably about a hundred things. If you just read your Bible, I saw this t-shirt, I want it. It said, brah, read your Bible. And uh, I just saw it this day, uh, yesterday, and uh, I thought, yes, that's the t-shirt. That is it. Just read, just, if you just, and I'm not, I know that that, that, uh, this is not directed toward any of you personally. Uh, I'm confident that most, if not all of you, are reading your Bible. But if you just read your Bible, you're going to understand things. Um, You're going to avoid so many issues and so many problems in your life if you do uh, what what God tells you to do. Um, But, you know, if we just read the Bible, it, it makes so many things clear. And in Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 7, Uh, He writes this, he says, And I will cause the captives of Judah and the captives of Israel to return and will rebuild those places as at the first. So they're back together in captivity. God says, I'm going to cause the captives of Israel and Judah. They're going to return together. And then still in the book of Jeremiah in chapter 50, verses 4 and 5, he writes this. In those days, of course, Jeremiah is... um, is foretelling this well in advance. In those days and at that time, says the Lord, the children of Israel shall come, and uh, they and the children of Judah together. With continual weeping, they shall come and seek the Lord their God. They shall ask the way to Zion with their faces toward it, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that will not be forgotten." So we know the tribes were reunited in captivity, that they returned together. But actually, before that, uh, many were actually left in the land and reunited with Judah during the time of King Josiah. So the revival during the reign of, uh, of Josiah, we, we, one of the places we can read about it is in Second Chronicles chapter 34, uh, there in verses 5 through nine and what we see there is is that uh is that there was a remnant left by the assyrians in the north that they many of them returned uh to the lord and that they were worshiping the lord there in jerusalem and that they were reunited with the southern kingdom of judah and benjamin that hadn't gone into captivity yet and they all experienced revival together. And, and many of those people were actually, not all, um, you should know, were taken into captivity. That a remnant was always left in the land. Part of that remnant became uh, what was known as the Samaritans. Uh, they brought other people in who had other religions and they intermixed and intermarried and kind of aberrated the Jewish religion. So that was some of it in, in what was uh, the area of the northern kingdom. But there were uh, quite a number of people, including Jeremiah, that weren't taken to ba- captive to Babylon. Uh, some of them ultimately went down to Egypt, and you can read about that uh, in the book of Jeremiah there. Uh, but it's very interesting that, that there isn't in the Bible this idea that there were ten tribes that just disappeared um, in the sea uh, and in the dispersion uh, within the sea of humanity. And we see little inklings of this uh, in the New Testament in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, we see a very well-known prophetess, a woman named Anna, 
and we're told her tribe. She was of the tribe of Asher, one of the supposedly lost uh, tribes of Israel. In James chapter 1, verse 1, interestingly, James chapter 1, verse 1, I was, I was having a conversation with, with uh, a guy one time, and, and um, he was all into the lost tribes and going down this whole road. And uh, he said, well, you know, James um, writes to, in chapter 1, verse 1, he writes to the tribes scattered abroad. Well, two problems with that. James doesn't write to 10 tribes scattered abroad. He writes to all of the tribes scattered abroad. And by the way, if he's writing them, how did he know where to address his letters if they were lost? (laughs) But anyway... I digress. The point is, is that we know that at the time James was writing, they were living in Israel. So the 12 tribes were represented in Israel, and there was a portion of the 12 tribes that had been dispersed abroad. And we know that's true historically, because everywhere Paul went, there were synagogues, and there were Jews, and and they were living throughout the empire, trading and all sorts of other things, businesses and, and uh, selling fabric in Philippi like uh, Lydia was. And so, you know, you, 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 you see this very clearly. Uh, and then you see what Paul says here. He says, to this promise, our 12 tribes earnestly serving God night and day, wherever they may be, hope to attain. No, he doesn't say that. Because they were living in Israel and they were also, many of them, dispersed. They knew, they knew where they were. This wasn't a biblical notion or, or concept. So why do, I, why do I bring this up? Because, first of all, it's important because you're going to hear this tragically a lot, the lost tribes. Well, maybe that's, you know, scholars. I see it all the time in scholarly publications and things like that. Just talking about the lost tribes like it's a thing. It's not a thing. Maybe, maybe for some people, but not, not biblically, it's, you know, uh, it, it's not a thing. But people use this. Uh, this same person that I was talking to was trying to say that, and this is kind of a, 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 a heresy that's out there now, trying to say that everybody who believes now is actually a descendant of these lost tribes. There's a huge problem with that. It's actually an acronym, DNA, you know? DNA just blows that out of the water. That was the killer of Joseph Smith, by the way, in the Mormons. DNA, wow. Whoever saw that coming, he didn't. You know, and, and so people have all of these things and they say these things. Reform, Joseph Smith also talked about reform Egyptian hieroglyphics. Then they learned how to read hieroglyphics. Oh, that really was a problem too. And then he talked about civilizations in South America. And then, you know, uh, all these excavations have been done. And lo and behold, none of those things written in the Book of Mormon are in South America or in the Americas at all. In fact, history is being rewritten, not by the Book of Mormon, uh, but by modern archaeology. And it actually supports what the Bible has to say. And so you look at these things and, and unfortunately, but, but this guy and people today are still saying this. Well, you know that that actually what's turning out to be is that everybody that believes is really descendants of these, these lost tribes. And, and uh, 
so not supported genotypically, obviously, but, uh, but uh, as well not supported biblically. You don't need that. The Bible says that there will be Jews and Gentiles, and that they will become one new man in Christ. We don't all have to be Jews. But here's the problem. For some people, we do, because they want to put people under the law. The same person wants everybody that I was talking to, wanted everybody to keep the feasts. You got to keep all the feasts and, and you got to keep the Sabbath. I said, well, yeah, but there's actually hundreds of laws. Why just those five or six? You know, uh, Paul said, if you're a debtor in one point to the law, you're a debtor in all points to the law. So if you're going to live by the law, you got to keep it all. Hundreds and hundreds of laws in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant. So there is a a movement, it's always been there, it was in Paul's day, it still exists in our day, to try to now put people within the house of Israel that are not part of the house of Israel, to try to put then, and, and that's not the end game, the end game is to then put people under the law, to put people back into bondage. You'll hear terms like Hebrew roots movement and um, this is exactly what that is. Um, you'll have different groups. There's a group over here, Simchat Torah. You've probably seen the, uh, their facility right over here. Uh, this is a, uh, a lot of people think they're a Jewish group. Uh, a lot of these groups, including that group, uh, are predominantly Gentiles, masquerading as Jews. It's really interesting. And, and, and like, sort of messianic jews but with the law and there's all kinds of of things like and these things are unfortunately alive and well um so again just bro read your bible you know uh just it, it, it's all right there no lost tribes um and we're not under uh under the uh old covenant we're under the new covenant and that was so much of what paul's problem was verse 8 he says why should it be thought incredible by you that god raises the dead what a good question people have a problem with the resurrection you know that's the the big thing uh with a lot of people they don't believe the resurrection a lot of work has been done uh on the resurrection um and uh, there's a great book if you ever want to read it. I, we might have a copy of it. We usually uh, do in our bookstore here. It's called The Case for the Resurrection by uh, Gary Habermas, I believe, is the author of that. Uh, and um, and, and the, there is a more compelling case that Jesus rose than that he didn't. In other words... Where we are, so many things historically, uh, you can't prove them. Can I, can I prove without a shadow of a doubt uh, to you that George Washington existed? Well, we didn't actually meet him. So, you know, technically you can't say, yeah, I'm a hunt. But you can say, I'm sure. I'm sure George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and, and Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson and all of these founders... You know, I'm sure that they, they lived, that they existed, that they did the things that I was told in school that they did, you know, for the most part. But you weren't there. So you're reading historical accounts. And so the question is, is, 
is it more likely than not that that historical account, based on the information that you see, is true? And that's how we have to judge any historical event, including the resurrection. And so the evidence and the arguments for the resurrection far outweigh the arguments uh, against it. And they're not really arguments, just, just naysay and things of that nature. And so when you look at it, a reasonable person is going to be more apt to say, yes, Christ did rise, than Christ didn't. But even without all of that, I guess the question is, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Because the point is, it's God. And yes, resurrection is a big deal to us. But what Paul is saying is, is that we're talking about God here. Why is it so incredible that, that, that God raises the dead? It's not, if God can create everything that is in existence, everything that we see and even things that we cannot see, some of which we're finding out to exist and be crucial components to the universe, if God can create all of that and if God can sustain all of that, then what's the big deal about resurrection? You see, if we, if we really believe in God, and this, this is true about so many things. You see, if you don't believe in God, then, you know, I suppose that, that uh, well, you know, you've got a whole host of problems. But, yeah, you, believing in the resurrection, you know, you're not going to believe any of it. But if you believe in God... And if you believe that God is the reason there is something rather than nothing, then, then resurrection shouldn't be so hard. Then creation shouldn't be so hard. We shouldn't have to fall back on other explanations uh, of things because we first believe in, in the most complex factor, and that is God. And so Paul puts things into perspective here, and he says, in verse 9, indeed, I myself thought I must do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. This I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. So Paul says, I was once like, I understand my accusers. I was one of them. And <clears throat> by the way, that's one of the greatest arguments for the resurrection. What changed Paul? What changed the man who was trying to kill Christians and to throw them in prison? I, I argue that there was only one thing that was ever going to change him and only one thing that ultimately did change him. And I don't really have to go out on a limb because the Bible makes it clear. It was the resurrected Christ. It was seeing Jesus on the road to Damascus. That changed everything for Paul. So what Paul is talking about here, what he's preaching and what he's saying, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of the hope in the scriptures. He didn't just hear about it. He saw it. He saw him. And he says, I've come a long way. Maybe you don't know how far I've come. 
you know, he consented to Stephen's death. He consented to the death of others. We see this back in the 8th chapter of Acts, uh, in, chap- in verse 1, and also in chapter 22, verse 20, how, how he was uh, a key player in the uh, stoning uh, of Stephen. And he may, we talked about Paul advancing within Judaism, Paul may have actually been a member of the Sanhedrin. Because he says something here, he says, I cast my vote against them. And the word there means, I cast down my stone. When the Sanhedrin members voted, they cast either a white stone or a black stone in an urn. The white was yes or acquitted or innocent. The black was no, guilty. And so he he says, I cast down my stone. Against these people, it, it may very well be that, that Paul wasn't, you know, just a, a, a zealous, somewhat well-known Pharisee, but that he was a member of the council itself, voting to execute people like Stephen. He says in verse 11, And I punished them often in every synagogue, And compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly enraged against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. While thus occupied, as I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests. At midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun. Shining around me and and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. You know, I don't know what your uh, transformation, your conversion was like, but the apostle Paul came to Christ kicking and screaming, breathing threats kicking all along the way, fighting it. And then Jesus got a hold of him, and Paul answered him. He said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness both of these thing, of the things uh, which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. So Christ revealed himself to Paul and then called him to share his revelation of the resurrected Savior, called him to preach the gospel to the world. Verse 17, he says, I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance 
For these reasons, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. Therefore, having obtained help from God, to this day I stand, witnessing both the small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead and will proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. It's always been right there. Always been right there. Yes, the Messiah will ultimately rule and reign. But first he came to suffer for all mankind. But you say, how do they not see it? Well, the scripture says that there is a veil. There are blinders. Blinders on all who refuse to believe, but particularly on on God's chosen people, the Jews. It's right before them in their scriptures, and yet they can't see it. They refuse to see it. It is so obvious there in Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant of God sent to pay for the sins of all, and yet there is a refusal to see these things. Paul even refused to see it until those scales fell from his eyes. And so verse 24, as he thus made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. (laughs) Festus, he just thinks Paul's crazy. Verse 25, he said, And no anger or frustration in his voice. He said, I'm not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. To the person who refuses to understand or take the time to contemplate truth and reason, ah, that's just crazy. You know, when's lunch? And, and, uh, but verse 26, the king, he says, before whom I speak freely, knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, since this thing was not done in a corner. Agrippa knew all about. You didn't live in Israel at this time, particularly someone like Agrippa, and not have heard about Jesus. Not not have wondered, heard the stories of, the resurrection and his disciples and the work that God was already doing. And so Festus, he's probably not going to get it. But Paul redirects his attention to Agrippa because he knows he's following everything that he's saying. He says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do believe. You see, as someone who was Sort of a Jew, you could say. He believed the prophets. And the only logical step then was to believe in Jesus as the fulfillment of the prophecies. And in verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, You almost persuade me to become a Christian. What was the issue? The issue wasn't the argument. Otherwise, he wouldn't have said that. He wouldn't have said, you know, you make a really good case. 
if he hadn't made a really good case. You know, they weren't just nice to prisoners. He was persuaded. A lot of people are persuaded, but they will not change. Because they don't want to pay the cost. In their minds, the price is too high. In Luke chapter 14, there in verse 28, the Lord Jesus encouraged us to count the cost. Before becoming his disciple, to count the cost. So Agrippa's problem was not in counting the cost. It was in his estimation of the cost. Jesus said, which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it? And he's talking about the cost of discipleship, saying, count the cost. And, but the point is not count the cost and then decide. It's count the cost and then follow me. But I think that Agrippa did some quick math. And he thought, you know, it's true, but I'm not going to follow him. A lot of people decide that. It's true, but I'm not. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus did die on the cross. Jesus did rise again from the dead, but then they'll say, but I'm not going to follow him. Why? Don't want to change. I, I don't want to give up my life. I don't want to give up what I had. Listen, if you're King Agrippa, you had a lot. And if you choose to follow Jesus, that's probably all going away. And you, you know, not just what you have, but maybe, you know, your safety and everything else that you enjoy. Certainly all your position and all that's probably not going to remain with you. All your power, you know. Can you imagine? And he didn't need but 10 seconds or 30 seconds to do that math in his head and to say, no. But guess what? That's the wrong kind of math. That's the wrong kind of estimation. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. He says, Matthew 10, verse 39 he who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but he loses his soul? That's the equation. That's, that's what people need to analyze when they're counting the cost. So I have my life. I keep my life. So what if I lose it in eternity? That's what he needed to realize that he didn't realize. And that was the cost that he didn't appropriately count when he chose that while he was in agreement with Paul, couldn't argue with Paul, he still wasn't going to accept Christ. He wasn't going to become a Christian. And you know, that's the case for a lot of people. There's people out there that they... They, uh, they disagree and, you know, they just, they need more information and a lot of those people come to Christ. But then there's people that they agree, but as I said, they're not going to come to Christ because, you know, 
they're not willing to give it up. And then there's others that play a game with themselves where they convince themselves that they really disagree or they try to find something that they can hang their hat on that, well, if this is true, then God must not be real. You know, and if, and, and if this is true, then, then God is not real and then therefore I don't need to submit to Jesus Christ. And this is the game that they play when really it's all about the cost. But the problem is, is that they're perceiving the costs all wrong. They're not counting the full costs. They may only be counting part of the costs in this life. And so, continuing on then, verse 29, Paul said, I would go, or, or, or I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am except for these chains. And when he had said these things, the king stood up, as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked among themselves, saying, This man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. So Paul had been declared innocent now four times, but they still don't have any charges against him. Verse 32, then Agrippa said to Festus, This man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Perhaps an appeal to Caesar, we don't know exactly, could not be reversed. Some people look at this and they say, see, Paul was hasty. He, he, he shouldn't have appealed to Caesar. But they forget that when Paul appealed to Caesar, they were getting ready to send him back to Jerusalem where he was going to be ambushed. And they also forget in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, that the Lord told him he was going to Rome. This wasn't a mistake. In Agrippa's mind, it was a mistake. If only he hadn't have done that, then we wouldn't have to send him to Caesar. No, God wanted him to go to Caesar. He was going to preach to Caesar as well. Wouldn't you love to, you look at this and maybe you think, man, I'd like to share my faith like that. I, I would like to be able to share like that or have more opportunities like that. Well, I'm here to tell you that you can, and I believe that as we seek the Lord and ask Him, He will prepare us and He will open doors like this for us. But at the same time, we have to be willing to pay the price. We have to be willing to assume the cost. Agrippa wasn't willing to assume the cost to be a follower of Jesus Christ Paul was. And because Paul was willing to assume the cost, not only did he have salvation in Christ, but God could use him. He could use him in circumstances like this. He could use him to reach people that no one else was ever going to get an opportunity to share with, but who were men nonetheless who needed to hear the truth of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we appreciate so much the things that you show us in your word you're just faithful to guard us to ground us once again in the word of truth of life of righteousness and lord we pray that you would help us having counted the costs to follow to be willing to pay the price 
to fulfill your calling in our lives. And though we know time is short and personal comforts may get in the way. So Lord, help us. Use us. Put those words in our hearts and in our mouths, a boldness, a purity, and a strength. And use us, Lord. While we're praying this morning, as you come and you hear the words of life, as you come and you hear about Jesus Christ and His death and His resurrection, and you do that math in your head, I pray that you have correctly counted the costs. And if you haven't given your life to Christ, that you would this morning. What does it gain? If you have the whole world, but yet you lose your soul, is that a price that is worth paying? Of course not. And God is willing that none should perish. And as a result, that all should come to repentance and receive the sacrifice of His Son for their sins on the cross. And if you haven't done so this morning, I'd like to pray with you right now. Right now to ask Christ into your heart. And you can know this. That is the prayer of sinners that God hears. If you'd like to join me this morning, would you slip up your hand? If you'd like to know that when you die, you'll spend an eternity with him. And not apart from him in hell. If you'd like to know that your sins are forgiven. If you'd like to walk with him and serve him then you need to place your faith in the Son, the Son of God who shed His blood for you. You take this opportunity now. Lord, we love you. Thank you so much for your people and for your church. Thank you for so great and so rich a salvation. Bless your people, strengthen them. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.